0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Beginning with the first verse of the 10th chapter of John's Gospel. Jesus is speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. For they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Gospel of the Lord. hear your voice clearly today. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us in our hardships and sufferings, not as a quick answer, but as someone who has known hardship and suffering and who calls us to follow his example. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, if you're not already. Uh, welcome to Lakewood Anglican this afternoon, and it's a beautiful afternoon. As we look at the texts today, we find a juxtaposition, at least I do, as I was looking at the gospel text versus the Acts and Petrine text. Um, as we look at them, we see Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, and of course, that banner verse that maybe you've held or seen. On things I've come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Right? But then, as the lectionary has it, we have Acts chapter 6, and we have St. Stephen being the first martyr, looking up to heaven as he's stoned and giving his life, the first deacon and the first martyr. And then we have St. Peter writing to the early church in his epistles saying that, yes, you will have hardship. Yes, you'll have hardship, but be subject to hardship in righteousness, for that's God's will. So if you're like me, you might have found yourself hearing those texts and thinking to yourself, well, Jesus, which is it? An abundant life or a life of hardship? Which is it? And maybe if you weren't seeing that in the text today, you've asked that question yourself at various points in your own life. Sometimes I get that question from people, what's the use of being a Christian? Why is life so difficult? Why do I have trials? We've probably all asked that at one point and another, right? None of us has led a life free from hardship trial or suffering some more some less of course and you've probably heard other people ask that question of you if God is good if God is all-powerful if you believe in him as a Christian shouldn't he protect you shouldn't he free you from any difficulty and hardship maybe you've asked it yourself I know I have. Maybe others have asked it of you as they look at your life. Most of us probably don't put it that bluntly or blatantly, of course, but we do see that stark difference between the here and now and the eternal as God wills it. It seems like things can go from bad to worse. And it seems that even though we haven't had overt persecution, per se, we have hardship and suffering in relationships. We have hardship and suffering with choices that we've made and the results of them. We have hardship and suffering that's deserved and undeserved from external causes, from internal causes, from things that we have brought upon ourselves. And when you're in the middle of it, when you're in the middle of hardship, pain, and you're trying to endure, it's really difficult to make sense of it, isn't it? It's very easy for uh, a, a theologian or a philosopher to say, oh yes, you're going through this, this, and this, and just take a step back and take a look at it. But it's really hard when you're in the middle of that suffering, right? Last week, I confessed to you that So often, I do not turn to the scriptures for solace as often as I should, right? And I said that to you um, knowing that, in fact, that's probably most of our story. But this week, the Good Shepherd speaks to us, and he speaks to us in the midst of an early church being persecuted, an early church suffering martyrdoms, and an early church going through all sorts of trials. You see, we take a break from the Easter readings at this point, right? Did you notice that in the gospel? Where are we? John chapter 10, right? So we're way before Jesus is betrayed. We're way before Jesus has died on the cross and has been brought back to life. We're back in John chapter 10. Why, do we, why are we doing that? Well, we're talking about Jesus as the Good Shepherd here. And we're talking about Jesus as the Good Shepherd because that's exactly what we need to hear at this point in Easter. And that's probably where the early apostles were in their faith journey at this point in the Easter season. Think about it. You all have the New Testament, you know how it ends. Right? We've got St. John's revelation. We see that hope of glory that St. Paul talks about. And yet, where would the apostles have been? Jesus has died, has risen again. St. Thomas has stuck his hand in Jesus' side and touched his pierced hands, right? What else has gone on? Uh, What did we do last week? We had the road to Emmaus where the disciples encounter Christ in the breaking of the bread. And the disciples and the apostles would have been asking, when is it that this kingdom is going to be fulfilled? In fact, they actually do ask that. Now, I'm jumping ahead a couple weeks, so forgive me. I don't want to reveal any secrets out of turn. But if we jump ahead to the Sunday after Ascension, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the apostles ask Jesus before he ascends to heaven, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Do you see where they are? They're waiting for it. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus has conquered death itself and suffering and all of that. And the, the apostles are asking him, is this the time now when you're going to restore your kingdom, Lord? Where you're going to put everything that's wrong to right when you're going to put everything that's unjust to just? When you're going to get rid of pain and all of the fallenness, or the disease, the sickness, the things that come with a sinful world? Is this the time? But Jesus rebuffs them. He says that it's not for them to know where the time is, when the time is, and where the place is for the kingdom to be understood. But then he gives them the directions to be his witnesses. And so that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 6. We see a logistical problem in the church. Strangely enough, yes, the church has problems of logistics. When are we going to get these tasks done? Who's going to step in this week? Who's going to finish that thing that needs to be finished before the service or before we go out? And we minister to those around us. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 6 at the beginning. Look with me at chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 in Acts. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We're going to go through Acts and Peter today, those lessons. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Let's stop right there for a moment. Do you see the problem? The problem is the church has grown so much and people are being so generous, so charitable that there's not enough people to distribute to the widows, the widows who needed the support of the church, right? And so it's a logistical problem. It's a challenge for the early church. And how did the apostles deal with it? Well, they gather together, and they do something about it, right? They delegate some of their power, some of their authority to others. Notice, not all hardship and trial is holy. I'm going to say that again. Not all hardship and trial is holy. What do I mean by that? Well, often hardship and trial, by Scripture's measure, is holy. In fact, that's what St. Peter tells us later in the second lesson. But not all hardship and trial is holy because sometimes we bring it on ourselves. Sometimes it's just stupid. Sometimes it's just foolish. Right? In Acts, we see that to go on persisting, as the apostles were doing, trying to do it all, was foolish. And how many of us don't have the wisdom to take a step back and look at our own lives and say, what I'm doing isn't working. This is foolish. I don't have enough strength or energy to do all of this. Why am I continuing to overcommit to things? Why am I so involved in so many different organizations, right? I mean, the Scripture speaks to us in very real, practical ways, and this is one of them. Not all hardship is holy. Some is just foolish. And sometimes we just need to take a step back and look at what we're doing and say, is this really what I need to be doing at this point in my life? Do I really need to be serving all these people in all these different ways? It's not selfish to do that, friends. Scripture gives you permission to do that here. The apostles had to do it. And so how do they stop being so run ragged, stop being so busy? Well, they stop it, first of all. They take stock, and they look around themselves, and they say, someone else could be doing this, right? They delegate their authority. And we have here the institution of the diaconate, Diaconate. Um, What's going on here is the apostles at this point don't have bishops, priests, and deacons. They don't have any of that. Or if you want to look at it from the flip side, they are all of that, right? And so what they do is they establish the office of deacon. What's a deacon? Well, most purely, a deacon is one who, verse 3, They pick out um, brothers from themselves, seven of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And they appoint them to the duty of tending to the tables and to serving and distributing the alms to the widows. And we see that today in the diaconate, actually. You know, we're working towards having a deacon here at uh, Lakewood Anglican. And we'll see that in reality, I believe, at some point. Where that deacon is an ordained person, commissioned, just as these first seven were, to serve at table, meaning to help at the altar, and also to take things out into the community, things of charity from the body of the the church out into the wider community. That's the purpose of the deacon. And we see the first seven here listed And uh, Philip did a fine job of reading the names, which are not all easy, right? And what happens when they are obedient and quit being so foolishly over busy, overworked? The kingdom of God expands. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What are we talking about priests here? We're talking about the Old Testament priests. A great number of the Jewish leaders saw the witness of the apostles and the deacons and came to the faith. So, you know, far from being selfish, sometimes... Delegating duties, sometimes sharing what we're supposed to be doing or not supposed to be doing with other people, is a way of enabling ministry, right? So think about it. If you're doing everything, and if you're running yourself ragged, you're actually blocking somebody else from doing a better job, and you might actually be standing in the way of somebody else to learn and to develop that skill not all hardship is unholy. We continue on. We do face persecution as the church, don't we? Of course, so often, as so often happens, whenever there's church growth in the kingdom of God, there's a spiritual pushback to the commissioning of these deacons. And Saint Stephen pays the price, in this case with his life being not just the first deacon, but the first martyr. He chastises the Sanhedrin for not seeing the sweep of Hebrew history towards Jesus. And you would have noticed if you were following in the Bible that we skipped several verses in order to curtail St. Stephen's speech. I advise you to go back and read those verses. Um, They're worth reading. But Stephen is basically calling God's people to Jesus, calling the Hebrew people to Jesus. And he pays the ultimate price with his life. And who else is there? Whose feet are the cloaks placed at as St. Stephen's being stoned? Did you catch it? Saul, Saul, Paul, also known as. So the church faces persecution. We're promised that. John 15:18, Jesus himself tells us, If the world hates you, know that it's hated you because it's hated me. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So, you know, don't go under the delusion. It's so easy for us all to fall in that people are going to see your faith and be glad about it. Or people are going to be drawn somehow to the Christian faith because of it being so wonderful and, ap- and, and being a, 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 a desire of theirs. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit has to put that desire in people. You see, we're not persecuted in this country, but there are countries where great persecution goes on. Their hardship and trial and sufferings are more than we can ever imagine. They suffer from, it's, the, the cost of the faith has cost them possessions, family, honor, blood, and sometimes like St. Stephen, even their lives. But we do have our own challenges here in the United States, don't we? But they're challenges that endanger the soul more, if not the body. You see, when our beliefs are mocked, and when we stand silent, or when the faith is ridiculed, and we go right along with it, that's grating on our own souls. Our Thursday group right now is going through a book called Good Faith, and It takes this point to task and says that most people in society today don't see the point of the faith or the church. As a matter of fact, 75% of Americans think that they can lead a pretty good and decent life without being a Christian. Now, I admit I've met a few that do lead good and decent lives without being a Christian. They're not necessarily Um, bad people but they're not necessarily good people and many people in our culture buy into this narrative that the faith is a hindrance and it's for simpletons and fools and that kind of hardship that kind of grating on the faith can be very dangerous because we can be tempted to fall into it. It's like sandpaper it just kind of scrubs away at you as opposed to a full frontal assault. It's not persecution, don't get me wrong. It certainly is not. But it's harassment and hardship and trial. And as American citizens, we have to safeguard our freedoms, yes. But as Christians, it's more important that we safeguard our souls and bring others into the safety of salvation, not getting too wrapped up in the things of this world because we know that this kingdom is not the kingdom of our Lord. Right? The church changes the world by unleashing the kingdom of God and transforming people and their souls. We equip by following Jesus' example. In our epistle, St. Peter addresses this directly. How do we change the world? How do we make a difference? St. Peter says endurance. Endurance in the face of persecution. Look at our reading today. Verses 13 through 17, if you have your Bibles with you. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, St. Peter writes to the church Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16 live as free people live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the Emperor. So what St. Peter saying is the way to transform society? Well, it's found there. In verse 15, for, it's, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So what does that mean? Well, I think it's endurance. It's being righteous in the face of hardship and persecution. It's being sanctified by trial and showing forth our witness in the trials and tribulations that we go through. Because that's what shows people Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. St. Peter says that that's our goal because that is the Christian's duty. Not necessarily to fight a culture war. Not necessarily to go out and change institutions. But rather, to endure and be transformed so that others look at you and see a difference. And finally... We fight against spiritual hardship and trial. St. Paul writes in Ephesians 6 that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. If only we fought against the world and the flesh, friends. If only that was what we had to fight. But the fact is that we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But Jesus has won the victory and has won that attack, too. Martin Luther, the great Reformation instigator, was well acquainted with many trials and sufferings himself. And he writes the following about holy trial and endurance. He says that that trial, or tenasio, as he writes, should teach you or does teach you and I as Christians not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, and how comforting God's word is. The devil will harry you, he says, but for the Christian, this will teach you to seek and love God's word all the more. So that's the third hardship and the holy hardship that we deal with. Have you ever seen any of these three in your own life? And how have you dealt with them? How the Holy Spirit worked in you or maybe is in the middle of that working in you? I can say for me, that's how it is. That in fact, I deal with all three of those. The world, the flesh, and the devil. There's a reason that We talk about that at baptism and then again at confirmation because it's continually going on. But how is he sanctifying your hearts and souls after the heart of Jesus, the good shepherd? Jesus is the good shepherd, not the kind shepherd. The good shepherd, which means that as John 10 illustrates, he'll stop at nothing to bring you and keep you in his fold. Yes, we rest securely on his goodness, and he will and does defend us. But there's nothing in John 10, and there's nothing in Psalm 23 about not going through the valley of the shadow of death. You won't find it in Scripture. So friends, let us rid ourselves of the hardship and trial that's unholy, and is from this world that's from expectations of this world, that's in our own lives by our own doing, and is not the will of the Lord. Secondly, let us pray for strength, for the persecuted church, for those that are going through true hardship and turmoil. And let us also pray for the church here in the United States, that we would be faithful against that grinding. And lastly, Let us commend our hardships and sufferings to God and allow those to push us closer to Him instead of pushing us away from Him as we naturally would have it. Take that suffering and commend it to the Lord. Yes, lament with those that lament and mourn with those who mourn. That's appropriate. But ultimately, let that suffering and endurance drive you to God's Word and to his people, to the cross, to the sacrament. Let it drive you to him who is the good shepherd. Amen.